Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Matt Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. What is up, my friends? We got a really fun show today. Our guest is Edward Chancellor, financial historian, author of one of my favorite books, Devil Take the Hindmost, and previously part of GMO's asset allocation team. He's out with a new book yesterday called The Price of Time, The Real Story of Interest, which is equal parts history, financial education, and philosophy. Today's show, Edward walks through how interest, debt, and money printing are related to things we've seen in society today and in the past few years, like zombie companies, bubbles, and massive amounts of paper wealth. We even talk about who was doing QE thousands of years ago. Then he narrows in on the current day and shares why he believes low interest rates are causing the slow growth environment the world's been stuck in recent times, along with the bad kind of wealth inequality. And also, how many podcast episodes do you get to listen to when the guest describes someone as half Elon Musk, half Ben Bernanke? One thing before we get to today's episode, on August 18th at 1 p.m. Eastern, 10 a.m. Pacific, we're hosting a free webinar on the topic of a framework for tail hedging. Check out the link in the show notes to sign up. This episode is sponsored by our friends at YCharts. A typical day in the life of a financial advisor calls for back-to-back client meetings, juggling portfolio management, and the consistent desire to improve client relationships. YCharts report and proposal tools could be the missing piece to help you effectively handle these time-consuming tasks. Now more than ever, clients want to hear from their advisors and with user-friendly templates at your disposal, generating impactful client reports can be easily integrated into your everyday routine, helping you free up time and focus on what matters most, enhancing client interactions and growing AUM. Need to make a clear head-to-head comparison between a client's existing portfolio and your proposed one? Want a seamless way to educate your client and present market trends with minimal effort? Join thousands of users who rely on YCharts to easily answer those questions and much more by leveraging personalized proposal reports to truly showcase your value add. Click the link in the show notes to learn what others are saying about YCharts' comprehensive suite of reporting and proposal generation tools. Get 20% off your initial YCharts professional subscription when you start your free YCharts trial. Click the link in the show notes or tell them Meb sent you for new customers only. Please enjoy this episode with Edward Chancellor. Edward, welcome to the show. Good to be with you. Where do we find you today? I'm in the West Country of England on a Sunday afternoon. It's uh, it's time to head to the pub for a pint for you and for me to still have some coffee. Um, you got a new book coming out. I'm super excited. I've read it. Listeners, it's called The Price of Time. The real story of interest. Uh, it's either going to be out this week when this drops, or if it's not, pre-order it because it's great. Uh, those students of history out there may know Edward from Devil Take the Hindmost, one of my favorite books, a history of financial speculation. Before we get to the new book, I have to ask you a question about the old book. What was your favorite bubble? Because I have one. And as you look back in history or mania, or uh, is, is there any one that kind of speaks to your heart that you just said, you know what, this one, this was really it for me. I love this one. And then I'll go after you do. Sure. I mean, in Devil Take the Hindmost, I suppose the one that I, that I liked the most was the one that had perhaps been least covered by, in other accounts, speculative manias. And that was the uh, if you remember the the diving engine mania of the 1690s, when there was sort of treasure ships were going out with some rather primitive diving gear, and one of them struck gold off the off the coast of Massachusetts with a huge return for for investors. I can't remember, so ten thousand percent return on investment. So you can guess what happened next. Every um, Tom, Dick, and Harry was. Uh, making a, a you know a diving engine, promising to salvage Spanish treasure ships, and this was just at the time when the um, when the, the stock exchange was uh, getting going 
in um, in, in London in, in Exchange Alley, and these these new companies were floated there, and you know, some quite respectable characters were involved. Um, so Edward Halley, who was the astronomer royal, a, a, a great scientist was behind one of them you, you get the picture and then a lot of them were completely dodgy and, and needless to say there were a lot of stockbrokers or what, what were then called stock jobbers who were selling uh who were selling the shares and, and that for me is the first technology mania and um it, it didn't last very long and and um, all the diving engine companies collapsed as far as i know you know, it's funny as you walk forward, what is that, 300 years, you have like the modern technology finally catching up where a lot of the marine exploration has gotten to be pretty sophisticated. And all of a sudden, you've seen some of these wrecks get found and then governments and all the intrigue on who's claiming what in the Caribbean, whether it's a Spanish vessel, but it's in Colombian water. There was even um, for listeners, you're gonna have to go do a little due diligence there was a publicly traded Odyssey Marine Exploration Company. It's probably out of business. Let me check real quick. Uh, but who used to, uh, that was their entire business model. O OMEX, that was a uh, whole business model was to go and find, a oh no, still traded. Just kidding. Let's see what the market cap is. 63 million bucks. Okay. Just kidding. But you make an interesting point is that you have speculative bubbles and the technology often does eventually catch up with the object of, uh, of speculation. But the trouble is that a huge period of time tends to elapse and the, and the early spe technology speculative ventures often collapse in the intervening period. So one way of seeing a, a, a speculative bubble is a misconception of that time period. People think that the distant future is actually just around the corner when in fact it is in the distant future which and then that's particularly so as you're probably aware when you get a rush of of sort of new technology flotations coming at the same time that's always from an investment perspective a red flag yeah i mean i think a a, a classic example right now too would have been electric vehicle mania, you know, you go back 100 years, and there was a lot of electrical vehicle startups. Uh, now they seem to be actually, you know, hitting hitting prime time. But yes, I mean, that's quite interesting that the first and most successful listed vehicle company in America was an electric vehicle. And that came to nothing. And then, you know, I mean, in the early days of, you know, in, in England, in the uh, 1890s was a big bubble in automobile stocks. In fact, my my grandmother's grandfather was the chairman of something called the the Great Horseless Carriage Company uh, that was listed by a, a fraudulent promoter called Lawson. And my grandmother always claimed that her grandfather died of a broken heart when that company <laughs> went bust. But you know the, these things go round and round. Yeah. Well, we could spend the whole time on this. You know, I am, um, well, my favorite, of course, and this just because personal experience, not historical, was I was fully coming of age during the internet bubble. So I got to experience it from introduction to trading side. And so I look fondly and try not to be too judgmental to the Robin Hood crowd of the last couple of years uh, and, and try not to be too preachy about, hey, you're going to lose all your money, but you'll learn a lot. So it's a good thing and try not to be a, Okay, boomer. <laughs> I write a column for for the Reuters commentary service called Breaking Views, and I wasn't quite so charitable with Robin Hood when it's coming into its I IPO. I said that you know it was more like the sheriff of Nottingham stealing from <laughs> the poor to give to the rich than perhaps Robin Hood. And I pointed out this to what you're talking about is that that E Trade, which was. Uh, both the um, a newly listed online broker in the late 90s, but also the object of speculation, and that when that dot-com bubble burst, E-Trade lost 95% of its value, and I think was later taken over by Morgan Stanley. And I had to say, I had to deal with some extremely aggressive response from Robin Hood, which uh, subsequently sort of died down because they couldn't actually find that I'd said anything inaccurate. Well, Robin Hood, look, we, you and I can agree on that. Ro I, I'm, I'm, let me make the distinction between the, the, the investors learning to invest in kind of 
figuring it out, and then the actual company. The actual company, I think history will not judge kindly whatsoever. I got into it with the founder once on Twitter because they claim many times in public, in audio and in writing, that most of their investors are buy and hold investors. And I said, I'm sorry, but there is no way that that statement is true. Either A, you don't know what buy and hold means, which I think is probably the case, or B, it's buy just- Buy in the morning, hold and sell in the afternoon. It B, it's an outright lie. And then he actually came back to me on Twitter and I said, this is this is crazy, but there's no way this is true. But you know what? I'm, I'm not, I'm a quant. So if there's a 0.1% chance this is true, I can't say with 100% certainty this is a lie. I mean, did you read the- uh, the Massachusetts Attorney General of Massachusetts launched a case against Robin Hood for what it called gamification. Gamification was really, and this is what I think Robin Hood did, is it brought the sort of addictive techniques that have been refined on the electronic games in Las Vegas into the stockbroking world uh, under the sort of rubric of democratization of investment. And uh, what you find is that in all eras where they claim a democratization of investment, those tend to coincide with bubble periods. And the brokers, such as E-Trade and Robinhood, uh, the propellant tend to get uh, you know pretty heavily hit in the downdraft. Yeah, well, the, uh, the eventual response from Robinhood to me, Vlad came on and he said, actually 98% of our investors are not pattern day traders. I said, well, what does that have to do with anything? <laughs> He's like, only 2% of our, our, our traders are pattern day traders. I said, what does that have to do with buy and hold? Like, what, what a ridiculous statement. Anyway, we could spend the entire time on Robinhood. Um, listeners, I have an old video that was called like five things Robinhood could do to like do right by their customers. And I think they've done none of them. So we'll check on the tombstone later. Um, Edward, but it's funny you mentioned E-Trade because this is very meta. I think one of my very first, my first online investment was an account at E-Trade and also bought E-Trade stock. So I, uh, I was deep in it in the, in the 1990s. I, I, I learned all my lessons uh, the hard way, which is, um, in hindsight, uh, probably the most effective way because uh, it's seared into your brain. But all right, let's talk about your book because you wrote an awesome book, Doubt. What was the origin story motivation for this book what uh what caused you to put pen to paper was it just a big fat pandemic and you said you know what i got nothing else to do or you said you know what this is a topic that's been burning and itching i can't let it go i want to talk about it what uh what was the inspiration well this book wasn't written in long time it took a lot longer than that i'm afraid i'd say that you know last 25 years of my time has been spent largely looking at what's going on in the financial markets at the you know at that current day and then trying to see whether people understand it well enough and what's not well understood so back in the 1990s go back to the dot-com bubble you're probably aware that you know at the time the view in in academic finance was this efficient market hypothesis markets there were no such things as speculative bubbles and that uh, the market prices the stock prices reflected rationally all available information risks so on and so forth now that was you know patently untrue and, and quite evident if one read the history so that sort of got me going on the dot-com bubble and i wrote you know devotee the Highness came out sort of in 99 just before the dot-com bust then what was quite interesting i was expecting a hard landing after the dot-com bust but no uh we got you know this great credit boom global credit boom and a uh, real estate bubble in, in, in US real estate. So I, I then sort of spent a few years working on a, um, we didn't publish it as a sort of a book to go out to retail investors, but more as a sort of report for the investment community. That was a book called Crunch Time for, for Credit. And that was sort of trying to analyze credit because I thought credit was misunderstood, which obviously was going into the global financial crisis when sort of very few people uh, seemed to understand that we were, you know, right on the edge of a precipice. So after the financial crisis, you know, interest rates were taken down to zero in the US and to less than zero in Europe and Japan. I was at the time working uh, for the investment firm GMO in Boston, and we were sort of 
we were trying, you know, we were thinking about the mean reversion of valuations. We were worrying about why the US stock market seemed in, so inflated. We were worrying about a variety of commodity bubbles. We were worrying about international carry trades of capital flows into emerging markets and the stability, instability that was provoking. We were worrying about what appeared to be sort of epic real estate and investment bubble in China. And we were also worrying about bond yields and why were bond yields so low? Why were they not mean reverting as our models were telling us we would believe they were? So I thought, well, hang on a second, we just don't understand interest as investors very much. And certainly the world, the, the, the economists and the policymakers don't really understand the ramifications of their ultra-low interest rates, both on the financial sector, on the real economy, and if you will, on society at large. So I thought this is a complicated subject, the, the story of interest, but it's sort of, in a way, everything, I'm thinking sort of around the mid middle of the last decade when I was, you know, started to make this a project, that everything really hinges on what interest does. And I, this book is an attempt to, to show the sort of extraordinary richness and, and multiple functions that interest performs. So the great thing about this book, um, you know, it's like part history, part uh, financial education, part philosophy. Maybe in this brief podcast, give us a, the history of interest rates. You know, listeners, you can you can go read the book for the full dive. Uh, but we'll talk about a few things that are sort of interesting. Um, because I feel like for the last few years, interest rates at zero negative was something that um, was certainly unfamiliar or surprised to a lot of people. You know, I think um, I don't remember reading about it in textbooks uh, in in college, certainly. But maybe talk to us a little bit about we have a long history of interest rates in the world. Most people, I assume, think it goes back 100 years, a couple hundred years, maybe to... I don't know, Amsterdam or Denmark or the Medici's or something. Um, but really, it goes back further than that. Give us a little uh, rewind. Yeah, I mean, so I opened the chapter with the origins of interest in the third millennia BC in the ancient Near East, Mesopotamia. And we have evidence there in this uh, the first recorded civilization that we have documentary evidence that we can decipher and learn about, that interest was there right at the beginning of recorded civilization. And what you find in the origins of the terms for interest in, uh, in, in Assyrian, for instance, is mash, which means uh, a goat or, or a lamb or in Greek, it's tokos, which means a calf. And there's all this, um, the origins of interest appears to be in the sort of reproduction of livestock. And we can sort of guess that in prehistoric times, uh, people were lending uh, livestock and taking back as interest some of the product of, of, of the animals. So, so what we see there is that interest is linked to the reproduction to the return on capital. And the word capital uh, in Latin comes from uh, head of cattle. <laughs> so it's all there right at the beginning. In fact, as I mentioned, Americans in the 19th century were lending, led in, the, in, the, in the far West were lending out cattle uh, and expecting, you know, a, a part, interest to be paid in, 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 in calves in, in a year's time. So we, we find, and that, but the other thing's interesting go back to uh, you know the ancient Near East is you find other aspects of interest. You find a real estate market and you can't have real estate markets because you know uh, buildings are long dated assets that have a stream of income over a long period of time. You need some interest to discount that future cash flow back to the present. And it would seem that the Mesopotamians had that. Uh, we, we find that this was a commercial trading uh, civilization that that, that uh, and that um, merchants who went on um, on seafaring voyages raising money with loads were paying higher interest because of the risk 
involved in their project. So you have that element of a of a risk and uh, of, of interest reflecting risk as it does in, in junk bonds and so forth. And then another interesting, as I point out, is the, the world's first laws, the Code of Hammurabi, uh, if you look at it, actually, a lot of it is to do with interest rate regulations, stipulating what the uh, maximum rates of interest were on on barley loans and on silver loans, what the, when interest should be forgiven, um, you know, for instance, after a flood. And what we can surmise is that uh, even back at that time, despite this regulation, the people lending and, and borrowing good interest were skirting around the regulations, so what we call regulatory arbitrage. Uh, so you see um, many of the... Uh, aspects of one associates with interest today, uh, you know, the return on capital, the valuation of risk, the discounting of, of, of uh, future cash flows to arrive at a capital value, were, were there five millennia ago. And I go through, I, mean, I think it's an interesting story, but I also go through the details because I'm trying to show to the reader right at the beginning, this, you know, interest may be sort of complicated, a bit a fair, a sort of, you know, difficult to pin down, but it, it seems to be uh, absolutely essential uh, in in sort of in in human affairs. What has sort of been the mental mindset? There's there's no word that's harder for me to pronounce than usury. If I even got it right this time, I always mispronounce it for some unknown reason. I don't know why. Um, but you know, has there been a cultural view of interest rates and debt? Um, you know, some cultures still have very specific views uh, and kind of uh, social constructs around it. How has that changed over the ages? Debt, pr debtor prisons, all these sort of uh, uh, thoughts around, who was it? Aristotle hated hated the idea. I can't remember back from the book. There's one of the philosophers that wasn't a big fan. No, you're, was... you're right. It's, Ar it's Aristotle. And I mean, so, I mean, the first point I, I think one should make is that, that in the great literature you know over the centuries of writing about interest or, or usury which is really a term for a sort of unfair rate of interest the view has been uh, that interest or usury was uh, unfair and extortionate now this view is not wholly incorrect if you are you know a, a peasant farmer and you are you know desperate for some grain or some money to buy some grain or buy some livestock, and I am the landowner or a lender, and you come to me and I just press you for um, as much as I can get out of you. And we find, as I mentioned in Mesopotamia, we find people taking slaves, in effect, as interest payments. <laughs> um, so, you know, and, and we find in, in Mesopotamia, in Greece and in Rome, people falling into uh, debt bondage and slavery due to um, extortionate interest. So that's the sort of, in a way, the well-known story of interest. But Aristotle tried to put a sort of philosophical gloss on why usury was bad. And he said the lender is asking back more than he has given. So, you know, I gave you a thousand dollars and you know in in a year's time i want eleven hundred dollars back so that that's unfair i'm asking for more and what i say is this is sort of wrong because even in the term usury is use is the word use and the use is you have the use of my capital for the course of a year and use has value because time has value and this was actually noted in it the, the writings of the greek philosopher aristotle when was sort of repeated by the catholic theologians in the middle ages and they said so they took aristotle uh they really took took on his denunciations of 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 interest to dart but one of them uh, an english cleric called thomas of cobham made this sort of a side comment about about usury. He said that the lender is charging for time, and he has no right to charge for time because time belongs to God. 
And we, as you enter into, you know, the modern age or the age, whether it's the Renaissance or the birth of capitalism, well, obviously people are going to drop the idea that time belongs to God and they'll say that time belongs to man. And once time belongs to man and once time, as Ben Franklin says, is money, is valuable, then it seems quite reasonable that a buyer and a seller should meet together a buyer and seller of money or lender and borrower should meet together and negotiate a fair price uh, for the loan of money for a period of time, particularly when that money is going to be used for a profitable endeavor. Yeah, I, I was, I'm always confused when people were like the, the argument with Aristotle would be like, OK, well, just give me all your money then and I'll give it back to you in 20 years and no interest. And, you know, like that seems to be a pretty, pretty quick uh, check against that argument. But, you know, like the interest rates, you know, and historically you can correct me on this, um, have historically bounced around in a range that's certainly higher than today. And I don't know what the correct range is. You can correct me. Maybe it's four to eight percent with the upper, uh, you know, um, bound of some of the sort of like almost the payday loans of today of the silver and barley. I'm trying to remember if it was like 25, 33, 40 percent or somewhere. Um, but it's not zero. And so, you know, there's some relationship already between culture and trust, but also clearly economic development. And so um, are there any strings we can kind of pull or generalizations about, you know, interest rates and economics uh, with uh, with sort of this um, not just multi-century, but multi-millennia sort of uh, um, history? Yeah, I mean, there is a bit of debate about the long term trend in interest rates, whether they're downwards. It does seem, if you go back to our Mesopotamian loans, which I think were, uh, I, mean, I think it's say 20% for silver silver loans and 33% for barley loans higher. Those are pretty high rates of interest. My book is really an account of interest rather than interest rates. The great history of interest rates is by Sidney Homer, updated by Richard Siller called, called a history of interest rates. And what they make a very interesting observation, it's actually quite worrying for us today, is that they say the course of civilizations are marked by U shapes of interest. So the interest starting high, coming down as the civilization progresses. And then just as civilization collapses, the interest rate taking off. And you see that in, uh, you see that in, 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 in Babylon, you see it in ancient Greece, you see it in Rome, you see it in Holland in the modern period. And you think, hey, hang on a sec, we've just had this, we've had the sort of L shape of the U, and who knows what goes next. There, there's another point uh, made by um, an Austrian economist who wrote a you know, three-volume work on capital and interest uh, called Eugen von Bernbarwerk. And he, he makes this point that the, I don't know if it's quite true, but he says the, the interest rate reflects the civilization, the sort of civilization attainments of a people. And he, he's really arguing that, that the countries, with, and you're thinking, you know, I'm thinking sort of 18th, 19th century, that countries with very high savings, like Holland in the 18th century, tended to have the lowest rates of interest. And the ones with the most developed financial systems or the ones with, where, you know, where, uh, capital was best protected by the law. So there may be something in it, but then if you thought about that comment, you say, hey, we must be living in the mo most civilized period of all of history. And that sort of, you know, you look around yourself and say that doesn't quite figure. And so um, one of the cool parts about the book, you also mentioned things like, you know, quantitative easing. And you're like, yo, quantitative easing isn't a modern phenomenon. It's like Tiberius was doing, was it Tiberius? Someone was doing this like two thousand years ago. Can you tell us what what uh what was going on? And for the for those uh, common commentators on Twitter that are railing about, you said you know this this has been actually been around for a little bit. <laughs> I mean, so Tiberius uh, was said to sort of raise taxes and locked up a lot of uh, cash in his royal treasury, inducing a depression. Um, and uh, widespread bankruptcies. And then interestingly, he, he sort of 
realized he had to let the money out of his treasury. But needless to say, he, he gave it to the rich patricians who benefited from the relaxing of what I call the world's first QE experiment. But actually, if you remember, we go on a much better analogue for what we're thinking about today is what happened in the early 18th century in France when John Law, uh, this Scottish adventurer, arrives in France and he sees the country as sort of the death of Louis of the of the King Louis XIV, 1750. The monarchy is bankrupt, the nation is depressed, prices are falling, and Law says uh, to the regent, "Let me found a uh, a bank, and I will fa- establish a company, and I will print money and bring down interest rates." And that's what Law did, really, uh, in 1719 and 1720. And the result was initially a uh, a period of prosperity and a decline in the level of interest and this printing of, of money led to the Great Mississippi Bubble, which was concentrated around the share price of the Mississippi company that John Law also ran. So he was sort of, if you will, sort of half half Elon Musk, half Ben Bernanke, he was sort of half, half central banker, half half speculative entrepreneur. And the, the price of the Mississippi Company, which was an enormous agglomeration of different businesses, probably worth sort of something like sort of two times French GDP. Um, and that the stock price rose, I think, 20-fold in the course of the year. And, and this is interesting, is that law brought uh, interest rates down uh, from a, around... Um, from around sort of six to eight percent, brought them down to two percent, and the Mississippi Company was trading on a PE of fifty times, which, as you know, is an earnings yield of two percent. So the sort of share price, and as Law himself realizes, hey, you know, you say this stock is expensive, but it's cheap relative to the interest rate. Well, we we heard a lot of that in the last few years, and then the other thing which is so interesting about the spirit, is that, as I say, initially there was a great burst of prosperity, but a contemporary banker who knew law, called, called Richard Cantillon, he said, you know, he wrote about this um, and that analysed Mississippi bubble. And he said, well, you, know, you can print all this money uh, and initially it's trapped in the financial system, but eventually there are two problems. First of all, there is no way of removing it. And secondly, eventually it will spill out into what he called, you know, the wider circulation, what we call the real, the broader economy, and and feed through into an inflation. So, I th- and, and then the most extraordinary thing, if you read accounts of Law's system, his QE experiment, you find that the academic economists are saying, hmm, yeah, this is great. Law is wonderful. He is the, he is the model upon which we base modern central banking and you think they base as their model a guy who admittedly very brilliant you know was you know who who at one stage was like elon musk the richest man in the world but who you know whose brief period of preeminence lasted you know 18 months and then you know the a tremendous collapse and law had to flee the country lived in exile sort of near penniless the rest of his life so I mean, it tells you that, to my mind, it tells you that sort of modern central banking has sort of built itself on a very, on on very sort of uh, soft foundations, if you will. It's a great story. The analogy you made, I actually wrote an article about a year ago because I was growing weary of hearing this, but people were justifying, particularly in the U.S., high stock valuations because interest rates were low. And um, I think the name of the piece, we'll link to it in the show notes, listeners, was stocks are allowed to be expensive because bond yields are low, dot, 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 right? And we basically went through, at least for the last 120 plus years, that wasn't the case. Well, excuse me. It was the case that, yes, stocks did well when interest rates were low, but it was entirely due to the fact that um, stock valuations were exceptionally low when interest rates were low, usually because um, the economy was in the tank 
interest rates were lowered because everything over the past decade or 20 years had been terrible and stocks had gotten crushed and inflation you know was high and valuations were low, all these things and then you had this recent period where everything was like the land of milk and honey in the US for the past decade but interest rates were also low which was like the big outlier anyway it's a fun piece listeners i don't think anyone read it certainly no one liked it um but uh but it's fun to dive into but i've been writing that same piece for you know on and off for 20 years and you've gotten the equal amount of either uh, non-interest or disdain. Which one, Which is the more uh, likely emotion? <laughs> I, I don't know. I, look, the thing is that you, you're aware of this thing called the Fed model for valuing the stock market. The Fed model is basically taking the 10-year Treasury yield, throwing a, a, an equity risk premium, a little premium for owning volatile equities, and saying that should be the fair value of the stock market. Now... It's some level for sort of in the short term, it makes sense that you know if you're choosing between particularly when when if yields are if bond yields are very low and equity yields are quite high, you can see that people will sort of chase the higher yield. But the trouble is that over the long run, we don't find stable relationship between bond yields and earnings yields. So sometimes they're sort of uh, stable, sometimes. Bond, bond markets and, and equity markets uh, move uh, in the opposite direction. Uh, other times they move together. I think in, in, 19, in the 1970s, earnings yield on the stock market, going into the 1970s, earning, earnings yield on the US stock market uh, was, uh, was much uh, higher than it is today. I'm talking about a cyclically adjusted earnings yield, not just one year. And, and bond yields were, were higher too. If you bought... The, uh, the U.S. stock market on what seemed like a sort of fair premium to the bond yield, uh, you still actually lost money over the next 12 years. So, you know, a GMO where I used to work, you know, we tended to value, um, you know, value equity markets on based on mean reversion of profitability and mean reversion of valuations. We didn't formally pay any attention to the bond yields. Um, having said that, over the last decade, you know, the and again, this is one of the reasons I got into writing this book. Over the you know, I, you know, over the last decade, uh, U.S. stock market uh, until this year was sort of compounding at more than ten percent a year, despite the fact it was starting off at what was historically high valuation. One has to be quite adaptive when one's actually looking at markets and the environment once it one's in. Yeah. Jeremy had a good quote. We uh, we queue up some of these quotes of the day. And uh, he goes, um, this is on my Twitter from a month ago. He goes, you don't get rewarded for taking risks. You get rewarded for buying cheap assets. And if the assets you bought get pushed up in price simply because they were risky, then you're not going to be rewarded for taking a risk. You're going to be punished for it. And uh, we got some some um, opinionated responses to that. So low rates, this environment we've been in is kind of, you know, you spend part of the time in the book. Um, there's some effects slash, uh, you know, things that coincide with whether it's a philosophical mindset on how people behave with low rates, whether it's actual economic impact on what low rates contribute to. I live in Los Angeles. My goodness, you can go find a $40 hamburger here and you can also, uh, you know, not find a place to live because prices are so expensive on, on housing. But talk to us just a little bit about what, what have low rates contributed to? And, 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 is, and is that all good? Is it all bad? What's the, any lessons from history we can draw from this current environment we're in? Yeah, I mean, so what, I'm, what I try to do in the second half of the book is to uh, examine the consequences of the very low interest rates that we, the unprecedented lo low interest rates that we saw in the last decade after the global financial crisis. And I sort of look at it as, you know, in, in di different ways. I start by looking at capital allocation. So, you know, interest is also the hurdle rate at which you lend money, you know, which you make an investment. How soon am I going to get? What's the payback time? What period? Your payback period is your sort of embedded interest on a, or, or return on capital. And I argue that the zombie phenomenon that we've seen really across the world 
in China, in Europe, in the US, where companies earning and not even earning enough profit to pay their uh, miserably low interest charges, uh, that, that capital is trapped, has been trapped in zombie companies, and, and that the very low interest rates have delayed and suspended the process of, of creative destruction, which the uh, Austrian economist Joseph Schumpeter said was the essence of the capitalist process. But closer to home, or to your home, I also argue that interest is... Um, the very low interest rates and, the, and, if you will, a sort of desperate search for high returns in a low interest rate world is what fueled uh, this great flow of capital, uh, of what you might call blind capital, into Silicon Valley. As, as Jim Grant you know, writes somewhere, unicorns like to graze on low interest rates, the lower, the better. So if you will, you've got this misallocation of capital, both into sort of your zombies, but also into your unicorns, your electric vehicle stocks or, wh or whatever. Yeah. So that, that's one aspect. The other we've just been talking about is, is the valuations, is that the very low interest rates, the very low discount rates seems to be behind you know, what's called the everything bubble. Actually, I, I haven't read it, but someone uh, someone called Sandy, Alistair Nair, Nairn has written this book called the end of the everything bubble. Now, you know, the everything bubbles, you know, were, you know, sort of particularly during the COVID market mania, you know, incorporated everything, you know, from SPACs to uh, vintage cars and so forth. And you see it sort of around the world. You saw, and I say, go back to the, the bubble in, in, in Chinese real estate, which is probably the biggest real estate bubble in the history of man. And I'm saying, you know, I think that the rise in, in, in wealth in reported wealth, which seems to be almost independent of actually the wealth-creating activities of individuals, uh, it, that this, what I call, you call a sort of virtual wealth, was a function of these very low interest rates. And then, you know, I also talk about interest as the, you know, what I was mentioning in, 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 in ancient Babylon, as how interest rates reflect risk, and in this low interest rate period, you find uh, that as interest rates fall, people take on more risk. I think as Jeremy was alluding to in that piece you just read out, uh, they, people take on more risk in order to compensate for the loss of income. So you get you know, masses of, of yield chasing, both in you know, domestic markets, high, high yield, leverage loans, so forth, but also international carry trade. So it's sort of financially destabilizing. There's a lot of weird parts to it, but the negative rates was certainly a weird period. But, you know, we've we've always had this Japan outlier situation for a long time where, you know, they've kind of been um, a low rate environment for, I mean, my lifetime, I think, <laughs> which would probably be the right time horizon almost, but for a long time at least. How should we think about living in this time? A lot of investors, particularly the younger cohort, haven't lived in a time of A, higher inflation, but B, what we would call financial repression, which listeners is a period where interest rates are lower than the rate of inflation and not just by a little bit right now. And who knows how long this inflation will stick around, but by a lot bit currently are there some other examples in history? I know we've had a few, certainly in the U.S. in the past century. But as far as you know, is, is that totally a outlier? You know, over the centuries or what? Well, financial repression or, or the policy of keeping interest rates below the rate of inflation is a tool for paying off excessive debt, and we saw that in Europe and in the United States after the Second World War, when interest rate in you know, Britain and um, and the US had high levels of debt, relatively high levels of debt, after the Second World War, over the following 30-year period, the interest rates kept low, inflation got into the system, and really most of the debt that got paid off in the post-war period, I think in the US, sort of equivalent of three and a half percentage points of GDP per annum, uh, was paid off through this financial repression. Now, I think that, you know, after the global financial crisis, 
with these zero interest rates. You know, in, are they, you know, the central banks really started financial repression after two thousand and eight. They, you know, the, with interest rates have been consistently below the level of inflation since two thousand and eight. Uh, the difference is that for the first uh, twelve years or thirteen years of this period, uh, inflation remained relatively under control within the sort of target range of central banks and so that so if you actually held cash over that period you tended to lose money however the other difference of this financial repression the sort of post gfc financial repression is that people you know is that the system carried on taking more and more debt so that and that was mainly households were sort of deleveraging fair enough but actually us corporations as you know were taking on debt to buy back their shares, a sort of massive buyback splurge. And the government, uh, US government, you know, particularly in the sort of late stages of the Trump administration, were running enormously high deficits, which, you know, ballooned during the COVID era. And um, it's quite clear that the corporations wouldn't have been leveraging themselves and the government wouldn't have been borrowing so much had interest rates been at a higher level. You know, it's difficult to say what's coming next. My feeling now is that we're on financial repression phase two in which interest rates rise on the back of inflation. But they still remain below inflation. and uh, uh, But nevertheless, the, the gap between the inflation, between the interest rate and inflation, allows this debt mountain to be reduced somewhat over the coming days. So I think that I mean, as I say, we don't know the future, but I think the sort of era of leveraged financial returns, or what what we call financial engineering, the era which has been so easy for private equity and for your activists, investors. Uh, you know, taking a large stake in a company and and just saying, "Hey, you've got to, you know, you've got to buy back your shares and borrow." So I think I think that era has come to an end. Who knows? We'll see. I'm bullish on uh, politicians, but also uh, uh, you know governments to surprise us with all sorts of new uh, innovations, <laughs> new ideas on. And if you know, if you believe Kathy Wood, we're going to have fifty percent GDP growth anyway here for the next. Uh, sometime in the next five years. So uh, that may save us all, AI. Give us a little boots on the ground uh, overview of what's going on your side of the pond. Um, UK stock market uh, stomped the US from 2000 to 2007-ish or whatever that decade might've been. It's been kind of in a sideways malaise here for a while, man. What's the vibe over there? Is are people just disinterested? Uh, Brexit was the topic du jour uh, for a while, and then uh, all the Boris stuff going on. Is this uh, valuations, which historically have kind of gone back and forth with the U.S. forever, are, are at a massive discount to what's going on in the U.S. How you feeling over there? What's the vibe? Well, as you say, uh, U.S. UK stock market hasn't really been going in here for a while and, and looks cheap on, you know, these uh, you know, traditional valuation measures. Why has it not been doing particularly well? I suppose partly because we didn't have the sort of tech titans. We didn't have any fan mags or whatever you want to call them. And as you know, you know the S&P returns have been largely from a, you know, a small, largely, you know, very highly concentrated cohort of, of you know, top six companies so we, we missed out on that i think you know perhaps you know th this year we've got we have a bit more energy in, in in the uk index so you know with shell and, and bp so that probably helps us a bit relative it's difficult i i don't have a particularly strong view in what on why aside from the sort of imbalance why the uk market has has, has done so poorly i don't think because unlike europe you know britain you know, Britain retains its own currency, and therefore, you know, we can we can devalue our currency. That gives the you know should give the stock market a bit more flexibility. Uh, I, I I don't I I think it may be just at the moment the UK market is a relatively good bet. So you sort of come back in ten years' time, 
and you know you probably uh, will find that the UK market has outperformed the US market just on the grounds that it had a lower starting valuation. That's the sort of the argument that that GMO w- w- would put. So, well, that's that's my guess, but I would have said that over the last couple of years too. So uh, the valuation. Uh, listeners is probably less than I think it's less than half the U.S. is now. So take that well for you may. Um, we'll, we'll check back in with Edward in uh, 2032. Sorry, I was trying to do the math. I'm like, how far away is 10 years from now? Uh, <laughs> all right. So as we start to wind down here today, um, anything uh, particularly from the book or topics that uh, we didn't talk about that. You're like, you know what, Mev, you must have skipped page 212 because this was like the, the linchpin of this book or um, said differently. It doesn't have to be the book, but what's got you excited or confused as we look to the future. So either one of those topics, feel free to, to run with. Yeah, I mean, what we didn't, what we have, perhaps haven't discussed um, at length is my argument that capitalism uh, is sort of, exists only because there is interest that capital it only only has meaning with interest that you as i go back as i said earlier you you know you need to discount some future cash flow to arrive at capital value that that's what capital is and in my last chapter i argue that this manipulation of interest is actually bringing about a huge amount of economic malaise, the low productivity growth that follows from the misallocation of capital and the thwarting of created destruction, but also the inequality that arises not is not the good inequality that comes from you know an entrepreneur founding his a business and and creating jobs and so forth. It's the sort of bad inequality uh, that sort of largely sort of is largely uh, accrues to people who haven't really done that much to to earn it. And and I I argue in the book I have a sort of chapter on inequality. And I, so you know it's, it's you know um, ten years ago or thereabouts um, Thomas Piketty the Frenchman wrote this thing saying you know inequality happens when uh, the rate of return r is greater than the growth rate. And I say, no, no, look at it. Inequality occurs when the interest rate, R, is lower than growth. That's what we see in the last year. When you inflate asset prices and those who have assets or those who work in financial sector uh, get all the gains. And then, you know, particularly the younger generation can't afford to buy houses. So this sense of capitalism is failing seems to me not due to any inherent problem with a market-based economic system, but because we have been manipulating and tried to almost take away the uh, the most important price, uh, the universal price in the capitalist system, the, the, if you will, the sort of linchpin that holds everything together. So if the houses are sort of appears to be falling in on itself, it's not just due to something which was necessary, uh, but it was something, it really is sort of a result of our errors. And I suppose if I want this, you know, I think this book should be interesting to people who are interested in investment and investment history. But I also think, you know, if you want to understand the problems, the social and economic problems of the modern day, you need to sort of take to a prize what interest is and what it does and how, necessary it is uh, for us. And, and, you, and you go back to what we were saying earlier, Ar- you know, we have a long history of denouncing interest, going back to Aristotle and even earlier. And this book is really saying, well, you know, <laughs> it's not in favour of high interest, it's in favour of fair interest. Because a, a society in equilibrium, an economy that's growing, will have a fair rate of interest. And that is not what we've seen really for the last 20 odd years. Yeah. As we get ready to release you into the evening, we normally ask uh, the guests, and you can answer this one as you see fit, what has been their most memorable investment? And you as an author who just put in a new book, you can choose to answer that because it could be good, bad, in between. 
going back to childhood and going back to yesterday, whatever the time frame you like. Uh, but you could also answer it as what's the most uh, memorable or interesting thing you unearthed in writing this book. I'll let you take it either way or both. If you're like, you know what, Meb, I got a damn good answer for both. Let's go. Either way you want to take that. I have, my most memorable investment was I was having, I'm a friend of a London hedge fund manager, Chris Binodi. I had a sort of boozy lunch with him one day. He gave me a stock tip. And I came back. It was a, a leveraged near bankrupt nursing home company. And I thought, shall I buy it for myself? I said, no, I don't know anything about it. I put it in my wife. I put £10,000 into my, in my wife's name. And it went up 18-fold. It was taken over six months. Wait, wait. It was taken over six months later. And all my wife did was complain to me at her huge capital gains tax bill. <laughs> <laughs> that, I, I, that, that I have never See, forgotten. Tell you what, I'll, I'll pay the capital gains, but you got to give me, I'll pay the taxes. You got to give me the capital gains for it. That's a good trade. Yeah, that's great. I love it. You know, the, um, the stock tips are so funny. I, I have so many friends that are professional discretionary money managers and I'm a quant. So, you know, it, um, all that just kind of, it seems like too much work on my end. There is another thing I'm thinking, you know, in terms of sort of mayor culpa, uh, I, you know, I didn't think that, that Putin was going to invade Ukraine. And he did. And a friend of mine, <laughs> I told a friend of mine that it didn't seem like a bad idea if you wanted energy exposure to get it cheap through the Russian stock ETF. And so then he called me up afterwards, said it's down a third after you know, tanks rolled across the border. I said, well, you know, it's cheaper now. <laughs> but actually, see, the, the point is that when you have an investment thesis and that you know, namely that was the investment thesis that Putin wasn't going to invade, you shouldn't actually change your mind when that thesis is not borne out and the stock falls. You should probably just get out and think about it again. So I, I have been sort of beating my, I don't know if I'll, you know, 10 years time, whether I will remember that, but I've certainly been beating myself up about it. Well, you got the first half of the trade right. The energy part was correct. The Russian part is, uh, it's actually, you know, I, I think it's going to be a TBD. The, um, as you kind of like draw out the uh, future probabilistic outcome and listeners, this is actually, I think, a little bit of an opportunity. I got to be careful what I say because we manage a few funds. So I'm not referencing our funds. However, most, at least in the United States, um, mutual funds and ETFs, and this was like 95% of all emerging market funds held Russian securities, those have been written down to zero. So if you buy an emerging market or a fund, and this isn't the, the Russia ETF in particular because that was halted, but funds that have not been halted, that have written these down to zero, you essentially have in that portfolio, if they're trading at net asset value, which almost all of them, I assume, are. You're getting a free a free option. That's a free call option. Now, for some, it was only about a percent of the portfolio, but for some, it was like 10. And so maybe it's worth nothing. GMO emerging markets, 15%. GMO, these are my old colleagues, you know, GMO resources fund, 12%. I, you know, I know, you know, a friend of mine running emerging market debt, fifteen percent. So there are quite a lot of funds in which, you know, at the beginning of the year, uh, you know, ten to fifteen percent of NAV was in Russia. Now, as you say, marked down to Syria. I understand, you know, you can't trade them uh, because, you know, the uh, U.S. Treasury rules. And I understand. I met some guy the other day who told me that, you know, Russians are calling up fund managers, you know saying, you know, we, we, we're willing to buy this off you. So there's definitely something. Uh, for me, it's a scandal because we've just really, in effect, sanctioned the Western investors. And I think it will, I think your point is quite right, is that if you were seeking sort of emerging experience, you should actually, one of the things you should bear in mind, cons consider is the free option that some of these funds will have. Yeah. And the, um, you know, the, the story will play out. So, you know, is it worth zero? Maybe is it worth something? Probably. Um, is it worth par or even more? Well, you know, there obviously something would have to change for that to happen. But and, you know, the great economist who was also a stockbroker and brilliant investor, David Ricardo, one one of his saying he had two sayings. One was. Let your profits run. And the other was never refuse an option. 
<laughs> I like I like both those. The let your profits run is the the credo of trend followers everywhere. So I uh, I love that one. I've definitely quoted it. I've never never heard the other one, but I'll take it. That's a great piece of advice, Edward. Let's wind down there. Let's uh, put a bow on it with that comment. Love to have you back uh, in the future uh, when you. Uh, Next thing you're writing or you got something on your brain, um, any place people should go uh, if they want to catch up with you on a more often basis. Um, obviously, they need, need to go buy your new book, but where else uh, should they go? Well, I write for Reuters Breaking Views. I, my con, I put it on hold over the summer, but I'll be writing again there but, you know, from October onwards. And that is, you know, it's it's not on by, it's on the Reuters website, so you, you can really See it then. I do a video with my piece every week. So if you, if you want more of my mug, you can uh, get five, 10 minutes of my interview on each piece. So that's really the best place to catch me. I love it. Listeners, The Price of Time, The Real Story of Interest. Uh, check out his book. Edward, thanks so much for joining us today. Yeah, thanks. It's been fun. Bye then. Podcast listeners will post show notes to today's conversation at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. If you love the show, if you hate it, shoot us feedback at themebfabershow.com. We love to read the reviews. Please review us on iTunes and subscribe to the show anywhere good podcasts are found. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. Good investing.